Welcome to Being Humankind, with your hosts Brian, Mike, and Neely. We explore what it means to be human in a time of disconnection. What is the most meaningful silence that you've ever experienced? Probably when I learned of my uncle's passing to suicide. Uh, I got the phone call from my mother. I was driving home. I had just left her house and she had called me and given the, the ever dreaded, oh, you're driving? Well, call me when you get home. I was like, Yeah, that's not how this is going to work. You can just tell me. She's like, nope, I'll wait. So obviously I knew something, something bad was coming. So as soon as I pulled into the driveway, I called her back. I said, all right, tell me. And she had, she had called to let me know that I had lost my uncle to suicide. And this was in uh, 2011. And I recall just walking into the house that I was staying in with uh, my girlfriend at the time. And I just kind of sat on the floor and stared at the fridge for probably 10 minutes because it just, my brain couldn't comprehend what I was hearing. So just a rush of emotions and thoughts and just trying to really understand how I was feeling or how I was supposed to be feeling, um, that, that I would say would be the most meaningful silence that I've felt. Can I ask you a question about that? And you don't have to answer? Of course. Okay. Um, was, was it something that had um, been that anyone had been anticipating or that anyone had seen coming or was it a complete surprise? I think that was one of the things that struck most deeply is that no one had seen it coming. Um, it, obviously we, we know now through suicide prevention and research that there's no one cause that ever leads to a suicide and it's, it's multiple factors, but none of us had seen any of the indicators I don't know if that was just out of not knowing what to look for, um, but we, none of us in the family had known that it was coming or had any precursors. So just hearing that news, I think, I mean, of course, if you hear about someone taking their life, it's always tragic, but if it's someone that you know has been struggling or, you know, fighting, then you're, you're kind of, I don't want to say prepared to hear it. But when it's just something that isn't even in the back of your mind, it uh, it takes a little bit, a little bit more to grasp and wrap your mind around. Thanks for answering that. Yeah, absolutely. So to dig a little bit deeper, I mean, again, if if you don't mind, how did you come out of that silence? I guess like how how did you deal with it, if that's the right way to put it. So that was one of the things that I had learned through therapy far later than I probably should have attended it, um, that I didn't really deal with it. So the, the first thing that I did is I made sure that I was strong to support my family who needed it. And I made sure that I was that rock for everyone else. And I just took it all on the shoulders compartmentalized everything and never coped. Um, so I got involved with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention once I lost my uncle and there wasn't a local chapter to Rhode Island. So that's when I started doing some research and actually ended up founding the chapter in Rhode Island with a, a few others who had suffered losses. And that became 
basically a part of my identity that I was a, a chairman of the board and I was a founder. And it was something that I could keep myself busy with and I could help people not go through what I had been through, but I could also be a, a pillar to the community to help them um, you know, lean on me and they would vent to me, tell me their stories. And I was happy to take on that role because I was helping someone else ease their pain. But in doing so, I was kind of taking those feelings with, um, you know, compounding them with my own and putting them all in that same little compartment. So once I started going to therapy and realized that that is what I had been doing, it kind of all fractured at that point and realized that I hadn't taken the time that I needed to grieve. I had just stayed busy and occupied for so long that I didn't allow myself the time to push through until much later. And it was obviously much more difficult. So you were not only taking on your own grief, but the grief of others in, and at the same time helping. Yeah, exactly. And that was, that was something that I had spoken with my mother about and she felt guilt over that, that she had leaned on me when she was the parent and was supposed to be, you know, my strength, but just personality wise, she's, she's a sensitive woman and allows herself to have those feelings and those emotions where I just kind of compartmentalize that and put on that front and I'm happy to help wherever I can. Uh, but I think having that that therapy and that breakthrough was was beneficial in the long run as, as difficult it was to push through at the time. And then also you're doing such a service too for, and, and you've helped so many in what you're doing. And that was my main focus is that we didn't have anything locally. And I, I knew that I surely wasn't the only one that was suffering a loss and there were going to be people who, um, as much as it may serve my own hubris to say that weren't handling it as well as I was, because you see people that, that truly struggle and they're, they're having their own struggles and it kind of compounds onto what they're feeling. That if I was able to do something to help people that were going through that, then it, it almost seemed like a responsibility to me to, to help be that catalyst. You think you were also, you were creating what you needed most? It's a great way to look at it. Yeah, I, I, if I had someone that was able to, you know, help guide me through the feelings that I was feeling or, you know, the feelings that I should have been feeling, I suppose, um, it, it could have been helpful. But we always joke when we have leadership conferences and anytime that um, the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, anytime we have conferences where we all get together, we have chapters all over the country and we joke um, as lightheartedly as we can about the subject matter that it's the family that we were never wanted but are very glad that we have because it's a group of people who uniquely understand what you've been through, what you're going through and where you're going to be. It's, it's a very difficult subject to talk about with individuals that don't understand um, depression. And, you know, in, in the work that I do, I talk to many individuals who, who feel depressed and who say, you know, 
I, I can't talk about this with somebody who doesn't understand depression. They just say, you know, those words that kind of make people feel even worse. Like, what do you, what do you, what do you have to be depressed about? And it's mm-hmm. like, and it's like depression. Yeah. 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 I and, mean, the feelings are always valid, no matter how, how someone else's opinion influences it. So it's so great to have people who understand and get it and have been, it just can validate. Yeah. And it, it, it doesn't, uh, it has no disregard for age, race, status, anything. I mean, it's, it's going to affect anyone across any spectrum. So you're coming up on, if my math is right, 10 years of working with suicide prevention. Um, first, what, what have you seen that's changed positively towards it? Um, I think a lot of the stigma is starting to be kind of peeled back that at one point we would have volunteers who refused to word, use the word suicide when they were talking about suicide. And that's just counterintuitive. If you're afraid to mention the word, then the people that you're speaking with that are struggling are thinking that, well, I'm embarrassed about it. You don't even want to hear the word. Um, so that that's one of the bigger things. And then just speaking on a like a political level, I suppose, getting the the crisis number changed to a three digit nine nine eight eight number uh, from the the one eight hundred help number. It's a lot more difficult to remember when you're dealing with someone in a crisis. Uh, so so having that put through legislatively is has been a, a really big point, very important to have. So with that said what do you see that still needs improvement that you kind of thought would be improved already? I mean, 10 years is a significant amount of time, but you know, I mean, obviously legislature takes forever, but. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's a drastic understatement. Um, I think the mental health parity is probably the thing that I thought would have been fixed by now, where you have, whatever your insurance covers, 10, 10 doctor's visits. If you have a broken arm or concussion or whatever, they want to get you better. But if you're having mental health issues, they don't treat it the same, but you, your brain is just as important as any other part of your body. But as far as uh, the medical field goes or insurance, they don't treat it the same. So it's got a, a good amount of ground to make up there where mental health should be covered to the same degree the physical health is. So I guess one more follow-up question off, you know, off our list, so to speak. Um, if you could, I guess it's hard because you don't really see people identifying people around them in trouble as much, but I mean, if you could say something from the experiences that you've had to somebody out there that thinks that, you know, somebody they love might be in a struggling or a a situation where it could lead to a suicide. I mean, I guess it's 
case by case maybe, but is there, is there something that you would put out there to guide, if you will? So I think the two largest points that I would bring up are that you have to not be afraid to ask the difficult questions is, are you thinking of taking your life? Um, do you have a plan to do so? And you have to phrase it that way specifically because we've learned through unfortunate means that there have been clinicians that have said, you know, are you thinking of hurting yourself? And their patients have said no, and then they've lost them to suicide um, through other means that did not cause them physical pain. So they were not lying to their clinicians. It just wasn't phrased correctly, which is an unfortunate thing, but you, you have to not be afraid to ask the hard questions. And I think the other biggest thing is everyone kind of assumes that someone else will take the reins. You see someone struggling, well, well, hopefully someone asks if they're okay or if they need help. Assume that you are that someone and don't be afraid to sit down and talk to that person if you believe that they're struggling. Don't ever assume that someone else is going to make that leap. That uh, just takes that one person to ask, are you okay? Do you wanna talk? And that, that could potentially save somebody's life. 